Hello, everybody. Welcome to the season three finale. I cannot believe we are already wrapping up season three of the Frontier Podcast. We have been making these episodes and interviewing folks in the tech community for over four years now. So um, this is a huge accomplishment for us and super stoked to bring things back in season four. Um, But for today, we're going to be wrapping up season three with a recap episode. So we'll circle back to some of the most shared moments from episodes that went live this past season. So season three of The Frontier was really focused on, you know, talking to folks who are putting in the legwork to build and shape our industry today. Uh, And the context is interesting, right? Where we recorded these episodes late 2022, early 2023. um, And we all know that it's been a wild economic time, um, which, you know, maybe that maybe that's true most of the time. But I think especially right now, it's hard to read the news and not get kind of scared of, you know, what's what's to come. Um, So for me, it's been really awesome to to listen to folks, whether they're founders, builders, developers, user research experts, right, department heads, and just get a sense of how they're thinking about continuing to push the ball forward in creative and innovative ways, despite what's happening at a macro level. Um, And a takeaway that I've had is, you know, regardless of what's happening in the economy or in the industry as a whole, people really think about team building and building together the same, right? Um, Which is lead with a mission-driven mentality, uh, hire the best folks you can, um, and then give them space to create and innovate on their own. So um, I'm excited to circle back to some of these conversations. Um, If you're a founder, there's a few episodes you're going to hear in here that are going to be really helpful for you to revisit if you missed some of season three, um, particularly, like I mentioned, how to lead with a clear mission and use that as your hiring edge, so to speak. Um, for developers, we've got some really great information um, about building and leveraging developer communities, especially if you're a freelancer or you're working remote. Finding time and space to connect with folks so you're not working on an island is more important than ever. And then for builders of all kinds, regardless of what your role is, what kind of department you're leading, um, we talk a lot about this season, how to think about UX in a time when standards for what good look like are just constantly changing. Um, so I'm really excited for you guys to to listen to these clips. I know that I learned a ton this season. Um, really grateful for the folks who joined us. Uh, and we will be back very soon. For people, it's, it's really cool. <laughs> it seems like you are a very mission-driven company. Like I'm hearing the mission is very clear with the impact that you're having on folks' lives, whether they're the owners or the guests, because some companies struggle with that. In fact, a lot of companies do. And it's hard to rally a team and a market around the thing that you're creating without that like crystal clear mission. And so I'm curious about like how that's cultivated on the team. Have you seen that it's been intentional or is it just kind of like everybody gets it? It's easy to grok. You come on because this is the kind of work you want to be doing. I will say that that makes hiring a bit easier. It's really yeah. easy to see the impact of something where you can say, Hey, like you're giving people photos and videos of, of key moments in their lives. Um, fantastic. Like that's not hard to describe and people are pretty much on board immediately with that. Plus it's fun problems to solve, um, on the engineering team, right? Like not, not everybody gets to work on photo and video capture, but it's visual. It's, it's fun. It's interactive. And, uh, you know, that there's a draw to that for sure. Uh, just from the hiring perspective, mm. but I do think it goes a bit deeper than that too. We end up with um, like our, our product itself ends up being um, very customer driven, right? You can make 
data-driven decisions about your customers a lot more easily when you know what your mission is. Like you know who the other people are um, who are using your product. Find your mistakes, don't do them again. Yeah. That's it, I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah, it takes a while. I mean, we're like over 200 episodes into this thing and it's still, we learn something wow. new every time. So I think thematically the the umbrella that's over everything we've talked about today is how to expand your, your skill set and your presence as a developer beyond just writing code. And I think you found some really cool ways to do that through events and through podcasting. And we didn't even mention content creation. Like you write really excellent guides and blog posts about Thank technical you. topics. And we've had you write some of those for us before. And I would imagine there's folks listening who, you know, so far have spent their careers really just focused on writing the code, right? And maybe are interested in expanding a little bit. So for those folks, if you were to distill like a first step for them, like, okay, you want to expand your skill set, here's the first thing you should do, what would that be? I've heard this interesting quote recently. I mean, actually, yesterday, I'm part of, for context, I'm part of a developer relations mentorship. That's a really, really cool and fun thing. We have guest uh, lecturers on, and what I heard yesterday is that uh, content is the final step of a learning process. So the advice here would be just, if we, we all learn as developers. We all do like some project or the other, solve a problem or something. Write about that problem. You've uh, actually had to research it. You had to learn about it. You had to solve that problem. And somebody else has that problem probably out there. Write about mm -hmm. that. Do a video about that. Podcast about it. It doesn't matter. That's just, you know document your, your document your process and that's already like good enough everything else is details and improvement and iteration just iterate over it and that's it that's you know all there is to it to my knowledge so far <laughs> yeah just start with what you know so we work with a lot of startups right and i think for folks who are kind of building from the ground up, the thought of implementing a design system is very far off of their radar because they're like, okay, what's the minimum viable thing that I can do today? Yeah. You know, so so we look at least somewhat legit and oh, I'll just bring in a designer to do this like one-off thing and that'll be that. What are your thoughts for folks kind of in those early stages around starting with a design system early? What's what's the value of starting early rather than circling back a few years down the line and trying to rebuild everything? Well, I think you, you've got to look at it as a phased approach. There's lots of levels of design systems and certain levels make sense at certain times. Um, so you might say, you know, we'll start with a UI kit version of a design system. So that's designers creating common components that are going to be used throughout the design. So I always tell, you know, startups and stuff, look at your brand, start building out common components. And it could just be a button. It could be an input field. It could be um, a card. But by building those common components, other designers can reuse them over and over again. And that way, when you do pivot your brand, as startups often have to do, you know, they might join and have a venture project that they might have to pivot their overall look and feel because they've evolved or they're looking to be purchased. So having that control at a granular label, level, sorry, to be able to make those changes easily is kind of key. So I look at it as saying, look, start with what you can. If it's just a UI kit, great. If you can add some documentation so that designers or freelancers that you hire after that can review it and say, oh, this is how they use their color. This is how they use their typography. This is when I should use this button and not that button. So a little bit of documentation is really letting future designers or future developers on the code side to pick up from where you're left off, which heavily reduces um, onboarding and really helps you pivot a lot as a company. Cause you may say, hey, we're in a huge push. We need 15 more developers and five more designers. And then you might pull back a little bit, but making sure that everybody's contributing to this kind of core center of truth helps that truth evolve over time. And then anyone who comes in afterwards has a starting point. And they're not just, again, building another button that's going to create a divergent experience. Right, to me, it feels like it feels like good hygiene in the same way that when we build backends, we 
need to have the right practices in place so that folks who come in after us aren't having to start from zero, right? It's, it's the same with anything, so. For us, I feel like talking to customers is what gives us the ideas or the hypotheses. And then doing our kind of large scale ad test to see like, all right, which problem statement really hits is how we validate what we learn from user interviews. So yeah, that's really awesome. I think, I mean, obviously I'm a marketer and I focus a lot on growth um, and I work closely with our product team as well. And so product and marketing, I feel like the use case for a user interview and the, the really rich data we get from those are obvious for product and marketing teams. But what are maybe some non-obvious ways that other teams can really benefit from hearing directly from the market um, and the way that you, you know, conduct those interviews? One, I always record my sessions and I share back the feedback, whether it's with, you know, the customer or the client, but even the internal stakeholders. You know, when, when I worked within an organization, it was really valuable for me, everyone that touches the product to see that feedback, especially if you're in a technology world, getting everyone to buy into what you're doing is really valuable. Mm. And I think sometimes technology folks, developers, engineers are really neglected in making sure that they hear those customer conversations because the salesperson is probably talking to the C-suite and talking to the product people and the customer service people. Well, what about the people that are actually building the solution? You know, when they hear the value of what they're building and the impact that it's providing, everyone now has skin in the game and they understand the why behind what they're doing. So I would say... It doesn't make sense. Right. I hadn't thought about the brand equity piece because you're right. So much of, of brand awareness is... Like our, our understanding of a brand exists within a web of other connections that make that brand come to mind at certain times. And as a marketer myself, I know that I have very little control over how that web is formed in my audience's mind. So that's fascinating. Is there a way for marketers like me, other than subscribing to your newsletter and staying up to date with? Uh, kind of the latest in terms of ad tech um, news. <laughs> and is there is there a tool we could use? How do you recommend we we get started there? The very first thing that marketers need to understand is that there is a disinformation economy. Mm. That's what we're here to dismantle. The disinformation economy is about the relationships, the business relationships with ad tech and publishers of disinformation. Okay, so. It's very easy as a marketer to just be like, well, I just don't want my ads associated with hate. Yes, right. but it's it's more than that. We need to also make sure that we are not funding hate. So if you think like a propagandist, you need three things. Right? You need money, of course, to sustain and grow your operation. You need data, the personally identifiable information of Americans so that you can better and better target and divide people. And you need ads. Because ads give legitimacy to the lies that you are publishing. Mm, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So as a propagandist, you want all of these three things. And so when you're a marketer and you're you're saying, no, listen, I don't, I don't want my ads to be supporting any of your work whatsoever, you need to cut them off, not just from the ads, but from the data and the money. So that's what we're doing at Check My Ads. We're uncovering networks of disinformation so that you can take them out entirely from the supply chain. What can you do as a marketer? The very first thing, check your ads. Actually go through your campaigns. And if you don't have enough data to do that, demand that you get your log level data minus personal identifiable information minus that PII. So demand that your log level data, make sure it's in your contract before you sign with your ad tech vendor that you get that data. Of course, you're going to need like a AWS bucket or something to contain it. And then right. you're going to want to go through it. You can, you can go through it yourself or you can pay someone to go through it. But you want to know what's there because I guarantee you there's going to be wasted spend anyway and you're going to get your money back 
in a big way. Yeah. Okay. The second thing, demand refunds. Don't be afraid to push back. You are the client. And they have promised you a lot of things. They've promised you in the contract, premium publishers, brand safety. If you look on the website, premium publishers, brand safety. And if you look in their publisher policies, these ad tech vendors have very specific language about what they would never allow in their inventory. Things like COVID-19 disinformation, hate and harassment, election disinformation. Playwire has, uh, we don't work with publishers that seek to overthrow a government, any of the insurrectionists, <laughs> no deal, right? Okay. So you go through those publisher policies and you look at who you've actually funded and you can demand refunds based on those publisher policies as well. I haven't thought about the power that the buyer has in, in an ad business relationship. I think because so many of the platforms that I work with are giant conglomerates. So it's very difficult to see yourself as any sort of power wielding player in that system. I, as you're talking, I'm thinking the mission of check my ads is so huge. And there are so many, so many networks like you're describing to uncover. I'm curious how you prioritize your work. How do you decide what's most important? That challenge that you're that you just talked about that challenge that you just elucidated that is the power dynamic between what looks to us like big ad tech companies especially when we're a smaller advertiser how do we demand what we need and one of the ways that we can talk about that is literally uncovering stories when it's sketchy and any advertiser who is dealing with this kind of challenge, who has demanded refunds or demanded their data and they're not getting it, can come to check my ads and we will talk about it publicly um, with you, either anonymous or here with us, if you like. Uh, we, yeah. That is our job. We uncover these stories because we are the watchdog. But I love kind of like the common thread that I'm hearing through, you know, all the conversation we've had about Sirius is this obsession with the user experience and making it simple. And I see, I see a connection there between a really simple, intuitive user experience and the mission of accessibility and equity, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. navigating a UX that kind of favors folks who are technical is going to exclude the users that you're trying to access. So I'd love to hear a little bit about just your take on how how a well-designed product, you know, helps you helps you meet that goal of accessibility. Mhm. Mm yeah, you are for sure right in terms of like this obsession with the user experience and I think <laughs> if you ask anybody in our team, they would 100% echo that. For us, taking the taking the decision to to like actually completely pause our product in the short run which we already had in beta version and we had users they loved the product they were using it we were like okay we have to make it better like that was with everything that's going on in the space with just the amount of complications it comes from people to really understand what's going on um, and how to use the product and what the benefits are and what the real value is because this is really the thing, like UX is one of the biggest challenges in the Web3 space. And I think it's also the biggest hindrance for people mm. really seeing the value of the space. And so for us, yeah. we had to make a pretty difficult decision in the short run to be like, okay, let's, let's pause. Let's go back to the drawing board. Let's lay out the concept. Let's put the user first, not the tech first. And of course, technology is great. But I think a lot of companies do this where they really, really focus on the so on the hardware, on the software, on the tech. And then the the aspect of the user and the user experience and the user journey is like, oh, yeah, okay, well, they'll get it. It's like they probably won't, you know, because you have these rose-colored glasses when you're in the product, we're developing it. You're like, oh, everyone's going to get it. It's so simple. And right. then it's like, well, will your mom get it? Will your grandma get it? Will your sister get it? Or are they yeah. going to be like, what the heck is this, this crypto thing you guys are showing me again? I don't understand. And so for us, it was like the biggest priority. And we ended up working with one of the best uh, designer firms in California with, you know, amazing designers who really were a big guide guidance for us throughout this process. A lot of iterations, and I'm sure you know, just kind of like how that goes, but a lot of iterations through how do we want to present 
our vision and the functionality of the product in a very simple way, right? Because I think that really is the kicker. You can have so much functionality, but if the user doesn't feel that fluidity and doesn't feel that flow right away of like, oh, okay, this is so intuitive, then it's, then you didn't, your mission is not complete, right? So you can push for saying like, oh, we have the best product out there, but what do the people actually think? And so for us, like where we are today, that's probably the biggest um, and most important points like, okay, well, what do people have to say and what's people's feedback? Because when you're applying for a job that's going to be ingested, like your application materials will be ingested by an ATS and filtered for keywords, they it, it's like SEO, right? They just want something that's keyword stuffed and, and written for a machine. But if I see that in an application, I'm like, no, this person, they don't really want this job. They just, they, they could have had ChatGPT write this, in fact. So anyway, the space in between those two really not good solutions is massive. And what you're describing as a use case of ChatGPT or other LLMs is a really compelling solution there. Yeah, I I agree, and I and I think one of the things maybe just to for posterity to 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 get it out there, one of the capabilities of ChatGPT that I think is super powerful is is the ability to role play. Mm. Part of prompt writing and getting ChatGPT in the on the on the right angle for what you want is to position it appropriately. So. On its face, you can ask it a question and it will return a fairly generic answer. But then if you but then you can say, um, you know, hey, I want you to play the role of a technical recruiter, then it can tap a whole different set of data about best practices for technical recruiting and simulate an interview with a technical recruiter. That is a very different interaction than if you just said, hey, how should I get a job in a tech company? You know, so. Um, the same tool, right? But it's a role shift in the tool that it's capable of doing um, that can be helpful as a counterpoint. Again, like if you think of this thing as sort of being a counterpoint to, to you, like what, what are you asking and what are you asking of the, of the counterpoint in, in order to get to the answer that you want? And so mm. it, that dimension, that axis is really important when you think about how do I get the most out of a tool? It's not like Google, where it's everything is sort of flat and linear. It's it, it's it's malleable in the sense that it can be a persona, and it understands what that persona is, and it has constraints around that. I hadn't thought about that, right? Like asking it to ingest a, a job description in your resume and say, you know, now coach me through an interview or play the role of a technical interviewer. Right. And then asking for feedback, like, hey, was there anything on my resume or in my experience that I should have noted in that question? Yeah, exactly. That's really cool. It's interesting because it sounds like in any kind of company in the digital therapeutics category, there's going to be a really interesting sector crossover, obviously, between technology and healthcare. And what's interesting about Luminopia is you're crossing over into many more sectors than just, you know, healthcare and and technology. You've got media partners that you're navigating, obviously complex algorithms, virtual reality. And so I'd love to hear your take on what it's like to design and develop in that space? How do you navigate such a wide array of, of sectors that you're building in? Collaboration is, is key. Getting the right people involved who, in their own respects, in their own particular category of expertise, are, are you know, very proficient, very experienced. Uh, but no one really truly has experience across the entire spectra of what we specifically do. It's just too many things. Mm. So we try to get the best people involved and we work on ways to collaborate with them and then remain flexible as much as we can too in what we build. We need to be able to hear different perspectives, perspectives that I've personally never heard before as maybe someone who's an engineer traditionally working with someone who's more 
scientifically focused or more regulatory focused is something that isn't obvious to me. Mm. But our collaboration is critical in order to deliver a product that checks all the boxes. The FDA approves that we can give out, give to the public and ultimately help people. So I think communication is critical. Getting the right people involved who have the right expertise is critical and remaining flexible mm. where this assumption that I had about how something should be done when I only get to think about it in my particular area is not going to be beneficial for a solution like this. You need to right. be flexible. You need to, it's okay. I need to concede on this point in order to, in order to achieve this new thing that doesn't exist yet. And how do we balance all of the concerns? You know, what's, what's paramount? Our North Star, I would say is regulatory. At the end of the day, if we're not, if we're not compliant, we, uh, we don't get out. The other piece of, of regulation that isn't maybe government mandated, but, you know, secret adheres to journalistic standards. Yeah. And I think anytime you're building in that space, you're going to have some challenges with, you know, how do you address that? Um, and so I'm curious, what has that experience been like building Seeker and trying to do so in a way that adheres to those standards? There's kind of two pieces to this. One is that we looked at standards in journalism and there was some, you know, there's, there's dozens of them that are just extremely sensible. And mm. we said, you know what, let's, let's build a, a um, technical model of those. So things like, um, does the headline match the body? Is there a byline? Um, those kind of things where, you know, the technical structure um, is the spelling right, all those kind of things, right? Because all those sort of lead to credible, not credible. But then the part that we wove in there that's new is there are about 350 known cognitive biases that people have. Yeah, How wow. do you... How do you take those and create them in a software program that then combine with these journalistic principles? And when they see a particular article, they all fire off and they say, I see the presence of these things. Mm. And so the presence of something like, um, OK, the first step, does the headline match the body? Half the time it doesn't. But then you see things like, hey, is this are there ad hominem attacks? How many unknown sources are cited? Uh, is there confirmation bias built in? Is there some other bias, gender or religious or age? How, how do you pick all that up? Are there certain words that are dog whistles mm. for certain groups? And before you know it, you start to see the presence of these things. And anyone, any journalist would say, oh, my God, well, the presence of all those things would indicate really poor journalism or, you know, something that is just not credible right. because it's the person is trying to influence you in ways that, that don't conform to the presentation itself. They're, they're just false. It's a false narrative. Um, so the tests that we're using are, have been shown to be sensitive to impairment from every class of substance. Um, so any, any kind of drug you can consume has a unique biosignature that can be found in eye movement, typically. So what we're doing, we started with cannabis. We conducted the world's largest clinical trial that's ever been done on cannabis impairment. And we are now moving from cannabis into other drugs. So we've already captured some alcohol data. We're capturing ketamine data. Uh, we're going to go on down the line and capture data from additional substances. And over time, the product will become much, much better and able to get down to, we think, um, very pinpoint accuracy with most substances. There are some that I think mm. are going to be very challenging. So for example, inhalants as a category that is so broad that um, it's very difficult to, I think, classify the impairment that we're going to see as inhalant-related impairment. It'll look like impairment, but we're not going to probably be able to say this is, you know, an air duster or, uh, you know, paint or whatever. I, mm -hmm. there, there are some things that are just going to ultimately be confounding, I think, to any test. But the vision really for gaze is to be in a single platform that can detect impairment from any class of drug. And so that's really the world that we're moving towards. That's fascinating. And I imagine for users who are not you know, technology companies who sell to other technology companies, usually the sale is a little bit easier because 
we're in a constant iterative state and we kind of move at the same pace. But technologies that are selling into industries that are not kind of your your typical technology buyer, law enforcement, you know, yeah. to be to be blunt here, like I think the the value of having a single flat platform really cannot be overstated here. I think when when a lot of folks think about design as a profession or as a specialty, the thing they think about is the creative process and a bunch of kind of artsy fartsy people in a room making sketches and you know being creative. When in reality, particularly in your line of work, but really with all design, the process is heavily rooted in data. Um, I know few people who are more obsessed with data than designers, right? So I'd love to hear your take, kind of regardless of of the design task at hand, whether it's super complex, like what you all work on, or something a little lower stakes. What are some mistakes you see in terms of the final design when folks are approaching it from a place of assumption rather than being rooted in, in data? Well, a, a, t- a typical issue is misjudging user behavior. Mm. So that's when you think people will do something, but actually they will do something else. Um, and, you know, a great example of that, you know, environment that's easy to understand is e-commerce. You could intuitively think about the process of people just coming in, looking for a product, maybe looking at another product, adding it to the cart and checking out. But if you look at the data, that's absolutely not what people do. I mean, that's a minority of all the sessions. What right. people actually do is they browse around the website in a way that seems uh, erratic and like it makes no sense. And then eventually some of them add something to the cart and then you're happy. So, of course, the secret is to try to understand what all those erratic patterns mean and to try to see what are some patterns within this universe of data and then to make uh, decisions from that to improve the design so that people can accomplish better goals. And I think we've all seen the evolution of e-commerce from what it was 10 years ago to what it is today. And that's exactly this type of evolution based on data that reveals the actual reality of people of what people are doing. Mm, yeah. I I mean, I'm sure after 15 years in the industry, you have lots of examples of times you were surprised when you thought for sure the data would reveal that people would behave in one way. And in fact, they behaved in a different way. Are there any stories that come to mind of times you were surprised? Oh, well, there are um, quite a lot. One of my favorite examples uh, is when we did some work for a point of sale system. So that's what uh, clerks would use in a shop, in this case, case in gas stations to just check out people and uh, get paid. Um, and so one of the assumptions, and it was really a view held by pretty much everybody in the project when we started, it was sort of, you know, you, you get a brief talking about a lot of general issues. And then one specific thing was, we want pictures of products in the, in the tablet. Uh, and that seemed like something that makes sense. You know, people would recognize an object much easier when they would see the picture rather than the word. But what we then learned was that actually that's not necessarily the case. Because a lot of objects look very similar. For example, um, bread. And, and you've lived in Switzerland, so you know how many types of bread there are. <laughs> and when you have a small thumbnail, you can easily mistake it. Or the same is true for coffee. So mm-hmm. after a few rounds of testing we ended up with having just uh, word labels. And that was surprising even to us in a way, even though, you know, after the fact you understand, oh, of course it makes sense for it to be this way. But in the beginning, the assumption is misleading. That's actually the big danger of assumptions because once you find out that it was wrong, you know why and it completely makes sense. But before you get to that point, you're completely blind. So at any moment in time, you're probably holding a lot of assumptions that are completely erroneous, but you don't know. That's fascinating. I think often of um, when I was in middle school, and one of the things we learn is how to operate an AED, right? So you're mm-hmm. taking a CPR class, and you learn how to to operate an AED. And that was the first time I thought about design as like the study of human behavior. Because if you were to ask me today, hey, Faith, how do you turn an AED on and how do you operate it? I'd probably say, I have no idea. But I'm sure I have to believe that the designers responsible for creating that, you know, understand what what human um, instinct is, right? How humans tend to operate and behave. Um, And of course, 
like that needs to be rooted in data and, and study of human behavior and not just assumptions. So it's a fascinating line of work. And then you came over to High Note as a product manager, and now you are in business operations. So talk to me about that. What did that transition look like? The transition, um, I, I have to say personally, was pretty hard for me, actually. Um, mostly because I think that what High Note as a business was looking for was a product leader at the, you know, we had, we had grown over time. We started to get customers, we're launching customers in, and really what we needed was a product leader who could start to do this five, 10 year roadmap, really high level stuff. And that's just not me. Like that is not what I'm good at. Um, I'm a very tactical person. Like, I'm like, okay, what do we need to do now? What should we get done? And so I didn't have that skill set, but I also like wasn't excited about learning that uh, myself. Mm -hmm. And so as as this came up, um, my boss had said, you know, uh, we're looking for a head of product. And here's the, the the person that we're looking for in terms of like, what the makeup of, of, of it was. And when I started to look at it, I was like, yeah, that's not me. Like, I don't actually want to do that. And so I did like more of my own soul searching of like, okay, let me make a list of the stuff that I really like to do here. Because I know I'm valued as as an employee, but I need to figure out what that means. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I really got an opportunity to sort of um, test out business operations because business operations is really like you work on the most important projects that the, that the company needs at any point in time. And I was like, yeah, this sounds exactly like what I like to do. Like run to trouble, try to, you know, try to find how we can fix it. And then leave it to the team that's got it and then go find another problem. Um, and that's kind of what I spent my first year doing. So once I started to look at that and try it on, I was like, oh, I can do this. And I actually started to find colleagues that had had that same um, transition in their career and like ask them about the job. Like, what do you think? Like, is this, you know, do you like what you're doing? And it started to grow on me. Like, okay, yes, this is actually the job for me. Um, and, and we hired an awesome head of product. And I'm so excited to partner with her because now we've got four hands instead of two yeah. to be able to do the like product work that we need to. So I've never heard business ops described that way. And it is like so precisely what business ops is. You know, I think we, we muddy it often because the nature of the product, the projects can change so vastly, mm. but you're working on whatever is most important in that moment with the intention of then passing it off to the relevant team. And I think at a, at a certain stage of growth, that's such a critical function that we often overlook and don't even think of as something that we can hire somebody to manage because it feels like, oh, well, you know, if it's a product problem, let product deal with it. Or if it's a operations let ops deal with it or the cool part too is that i i liked problems that weren't necessarily product problems or operations problems or even sales problems and so i got to sit down and say like these are the problems that i want to be involved in and and make that part of my job and so i keep that list with me mm -hmm. so that i make sure like okay i'm continuing to do this stuff because ultimately, that makes me excited to come to work is doing the stuff I know is necessary for the business, but is also like, super fun. Like I still work on API docs, I still help, you know, with the stuff on the website, like, yeah. I just get to do a little bit of everything. From from all of the people that you've spoken to, mm -hmm. on podcast and off, uh, what is the theme of those that have made it work? Like, like what was, for me, I would just say, my, I would say like work ethic is just like so important, just sticking. But when you talk to so many people, like what do you get? What, what, what is the, the principle, what are the principles that you, you get out of them? Hmm. I, I honestly think there's just one very clear through line among all founders or folks mm. who build things, which is they're there to build. They're not mm. there to accomplish. Got and it. you think about folks who throw in the towel or who do it once and they're like, that was not for me. It's because they were surprised by 
this environment where you thought it was going to be a series of win after win after win, and you'd be able to celebrate those wins. And of course, you expect losses too, but the reality of founding a company and building something is you kind of barely notice the wins because you're always thinking about the next thing. You're just, you are on the treadmill. Yeah. You're Mm. not going for a run from point A to point B, right? Mm. And you have to like being on the treadmill. And if, if you don't, you're, you're not going to come back and do it again. Yeah. I, I agree with that. It's one of the reasons that I always advise people that Starting a company has got to be in a wheelhouse of something you really care about. Mm. And there's probably not a lot of those, right? There's probably not a lot of things that your your word through line, I think, is very strong. That the, the number of through lines in your life, what are there, like five, mm. maybe, right? Yeah. Like I can think of only a few things that I was excited about at the age of 10 that I'm still excited about <laughs> 25 years later, right? There's yeah. not that many. So <clears throat> people change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but also people stay the same. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you've got to find places where you do that. There are other people like people that come out of Y Combinator. I, I always, I, the example I always use is Jack uh, Altman, who started mm-hmm. Lattice. He started a company and it made uh, performance review software. And so I was like, I think he talked about it pretty openly. He was like, you, I did not start excited about performance review software. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you know, he ultimately became excited about it. So there are people like that. Right. And I think lots of freelancers, lots of businesses of one, they're just like, well, I, I don't fit into this space and here are the things that I can't do. And I can't, this is just like, cause, because my first, my first books were really like directed at freelancers, mm. right? Trust agents was directed at freelancers where it was like, here's how to build an audience online. And, and, and here's why that's good. And, uh, you fed, it was a lot of people that were just did not fit inside the box that they had been presented with. And they're just like, no, no, no. And they resisted it and they had to go out and they had to make their way. Yeah. You talked a little bit about one of the great joys of of building a company is just being able to work with incredible talent that knocks your socks off. And you've had a front row seat to several other companies as, as they've been built across different industries. Mm-hmm. And our thing here is hiring, building teams, how people think about that. So I'm curious, what are the challenges that you've seen that have been similar regardless of of industry i will say that there that the top people always have a certain set of qualities and that i've become very principled about hiring Mm. like i you know it just it happens over time like you you have to you have to fire a certain number of people to get to like 300 people that you've hired or whatever the number is that i've hired right it's more than that but it's like you have to get there's a certain amount that's not going to work out and so I remember doing it on instinct. There were several mistakes that happened. And one of them was just like asking rando questions, which I think everybody goes through that phase of like, I'm just going to ask stupid shit. Right. I'll just know when I know. I'll I'll know when I know. No, you won't. Yeah. (laughs) You will not. Uh, And so that's, it's a question of, I'm going to ask random questions and I'll know when I know. Do not do that. For a lot of reasons. Second, one of the biggest mistakes is people do not source enough people. It's Mm. so common. Here are the people that I know. I know like three people. I'm going to get three candidates. I'm going to hire among them. No! (laughs) You know, one of the key levers for growth at Harness has been your open source community. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on, on the foundations of that, um, the, the impetus and, you know, how, how you've seen it boost community engagement and then ultimately growth uh, on the product side. Yeah, I think it's important with open source that companies support and nurture the mission of that project mm. while keeping two things in mind. One is it's okay to attach your brand to that. Like, you don't have to keep it so far away that no one knows it's yours. 
Right. Like, I think there's actually comfort in knowing that there is a bigger company behind this thing. So that if I spend my time integrating this into my workflow or, or bringing this into my organization, it's not going to disappear because someone gave up on it next week. Right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, don't be afraid to attach your company to something in terms of an open source project. But at the same time, don't smother it with your brand either. Like it, it should be a standalone entity that that can operate and have have governance and have transparency and visibility. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I've had to do this a number of times in my career and there, there's a balance. You don't always get it right. Um, you know, I think at Harness, we've done a, a good job of, of navigating choppy waters mm-hmm. with, with the open source world and making sure that some of our key projects like drone for CI um, or uh, litmus for chaos engineering and resiliency testing, like those are both thriving communities as a result of Harness's involvement, um, not despite it, right? And I think that's that's sort of the the balance to get right. Right. It's also important that marketing leaders and and product leaders understand that not everyone is going to find a path from an open source product to your commercial offering. Mm. At every company I've ever been at, there's always a conversation that happens at some point with an open source project of like, well, how do we get these people to pay? (laughs) And it's like, well, not everyone that signs up ever has an intention to pay. Not everyone has a use case where paying is important. And not everyone wants to abandon being a builder for being a user. Mm. And and it's that last one that I think a lot of people, it's easy to, to forget that. Right. And and so thinking about it in terms of there are companies and teams where finding the best open source project and then building a team around it who is going to turn that into a project or product within your organization. There are people who like that's what they want to do. And it doesn't matter how much push you give them to try and move over to our paid SaaS version or or our commercial offering. That's not why they signed up for it in the first place right right they signed up for it to have the ingredients not the finished product and i think it's important to to recognize that respect that and and support that because those people can also be the biggest champions of your of your open source project down the road the biggest contributors to it and, and so on so i think again back to balance like recognize that for some people it's a path to your commercial for some people it's it's just where they want to be and I think making sure you support both sides of that. Yeah. And I think understanding that they're they're each valuable in their own way. You know, brand marketing is often overlooked because it's just kind of, it's inherently really hard to measure ROI for, and it requires a lot of resources. So something like, something like an open source community, you're right. You're always going to have a percentage of folks who are not going to convert to paid users, but what they will do is trust your brand and probably talk about your brand. And when they're sitting sitting in team meetings, uh, listening to other folks vet solutions for something that that you you offer, they're going to recommend your product because there's that awareness and that trust. So it's easy for folks like you and I to see that path. But I think when we're advocating for something like an open source project internally, it can be it can be challenging, right? It, it can, and especially if you try and frame it as a this will be good for our brand type <laughs> yeah. type of thing, right? Because, because there is a significant engineering investment that you have to make on an mm-hmm. ugly basis. There's developer relations, there's community engagement. There's, you know, like there's all of these sort of like seemingly disconnected, but really in- integral parts of what makes an open source investment um, successful. And if they're not all there, if, you know, marketing is doing a great job, with awareness, but engineering is not responding to pull requests or to issues with the code, or you know, uh, if uh, the DevRel side of things isn't showing up at the right places and the right communities to to show relevancy and an active project, like it, none of those can stand alone. And I think you you sort of really do need a mission statement as a company for why you're doing this, mm-hmm. not just like oh well we have this code let's open source it it'll be great we'll have a giant community <laughs> next year of all these people in our community slack it's like no you won't right you won't the reason people gravitate towards open source is is sometimes first for novelty if you truly have a novel thing out there 
but then it's because there's a thriving community around it. So you have mm-hmm. to bootstrap that until the point where that's actually true. And there's a great quote from uh, from Jeff Bezos, which I'll, I'll butcher, but I'll paraphrase, which is like, he's willing to be misunderstood for a long period of time. Like mm. willing to invest in something that other people are like, I don't get this for a long period of time because he has high conviction. And I think open source is very similar where if you're a company trying to succeed with an open source project, you are you should decide to make a multi-year investment in all the ingredients that are going to make that successful. Not just think you're going to flip from closed to open in, in your GitHub repo, put out a tweet, and now all of a sudden you've got something. It's like right. very rarely is that actually the case, right? <laughs> That is it for season three of the Frontier Podcast. Thank you guys for listening, for sharing ideas, for recommending folks for us to interview. Um, Like I said, we will be back for season four. We'll continue to share fun tech history facts every week. Um, And we'll also be doing a founder to founder um, interview series. And so our founder and CEO, Teji Anamandra, will be here as our host for those episodes. Um, and if you know a founder of a company who's got a really interesting story and lots of lessons learned to share with this audience, please send them our way. You can always reach us at team at gun.io. That's it. We will see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast powered by gun.io. We drop two episodes per week. So if you like this episode, Be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and come hang out with us again next week and bring all your internet friends. If you have questions or recommendations, just shoot us a Twitter DM at the frontier pod and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.